0: NeuroPodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. To get the most out of this episode, we recommend downloading the supplementary case notes, which are available on Vital. Here you'll find more information about the case, including history, examination and investigation findings. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello, my name is Sari Healy. I'm one of the neurology registrars working at the Walton Centre. I'm here today with Dr Davies, Consultant Neurologist. Hi there. Um, hi, and we're going to discuss uh, an approach to a confused patient on the ward. Okay. So Dr Davies, from F1 all the way up to Consultant, you might be asked to um, come and assess a an confused patient. How do you go about it?
1: Okay, so my first thought really is what does that word confusion mean? And it can mean lots of different things. Uh, in fact, there's a whole, whole range of causes of confusion or impaired cognition. And they don't all begin with a C, they all begin with a D. Next let- letter along. So the most obvious, I suppose, is a delirium or an acute confusional state. And, and perhaps we'll come back to that one. Um, but the first D to distinguish from delirium is dementia. And, of course, what that implies is impairment of cognition, generally more than one domain of cognition, and that that impairment is progressing gradually rather than rapidly. Uh, So that's the distinction between dementia and delirium. Dementia occurs much more gradually. Uh, And then the other point about a dementia of course is that it's meant to include more than one domain so not just memory being affected not just language function but more than one domain the next d to think about would be a deficit a focal deficit so this is just one domain of cognition being affected and of course the classical one to think about would be another d which is a dysphasia so, someone with a receptive dysphasia, a Wernicke type dysphasia, um, might come across to someone who's inexpert uh, as as a confusion. So, so these are people who kind of talk gobbledygook and who don't understand what is said to them. Although, actually, if you can manage to communicate nonverbally, gestures and so on, their abilities uh, and their coherence is better than someone who is delirious uh, or, or demented in, in, in general. So so that's an important one not to miss, a focal deficit and in particular a receptive Wernicke-type dysphasia. A couple of others to mention for good measure straddle the, the boundary between neuroscience and psychiatry. So of course... Uh, Delusional disorder, uh, thought disorder that that can represent a form of confusion, uh, and you know there are certain distinctions from delirium. So in a thought disorder, generally alertness is preserved, whereas alertness may be impaired in delirium, and they may have hallucinations. But of course, in a primary psychiatric delusional. Disorder. The hallucinations would generally be in the auditory modality rather than in other modalities, such as the visual modality. A little bit more esoteric. Of course, you can have so-called depressive pseudo dementia. Pretty unlikely in the ward setting. The other cause of impaired confusion, uh, imp- impaired cognition, of course, is that someone's cognition never attained a high level developmentally so uh, cognitive or learning disability again not likely to be directly relevant in a in a ward uh, setting and finally uh, i'm going to use the d word dissociation and that of course is the most difficult to explain of all so this is one of the forms of functional neurological disorder uh, and uh, the classical form of impaired cognition as a functional syndrome is severe or absolute retrograde amnesia and uh, relative preservation of memory going forward. So these are people who turn up and they have no memory or no apparent memory of their past lives, but actually they're able to keep track of things in uh, the sequence of events going forward, and that's sometimes called the fugue state. So there's a, a collection of D's, uh, which which are the uh, range of syndromes, range of scenarios that can present with confusion, delirium, dementia, uh, focal deficits such as dysphasia, delusional disorder, a depression, developmental or learning disability. And finally, dissociation.
0: Okay. So, thinking about a general patient on the ward, you mentioned a few Ds that are less likely and a few exactly. Ds that are more likely. So, so.
1: Yeah. So, as your starting point, you need to be alert to what the syndrome is. And of course, in the ward setting, it's much more likely to be delirium than any of the others. Mm-hmm. And um, as, as I mentioned, uh, this, in terms of the actual neurological syndrome here, in contrast to dementia or to a delusional disorder you might get impairment of alertness uh, so you could say uh, a lowering of the GCS uh, but but the actual syndrome is not an impairment of alertness primarily but rather an impairment of attention, so attention concentration uh, another word for the same thing and also working memory so, so this is uh, the uh, scenario where people uh, are not able to do serial sevens type tests very well, and there are sort of uh, drawing tests on a page marking off a certain symbol on a page that test a similar function and then the classical way of testing for that is is a digit span, so the clinician expresses a series of 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 digits and gets the patient to say them back or to say them back in reverse order and what that amounts to is impairment of attention which can also be described using another D word, distraction or distractibility so delirium in terms of what it is how the patient is in terms of their neurological function is a syndrome of distractibility timing is also important, comes on acutely or subacutely may reverse, can fluctuate, may be associated with agitation or uh, psychomotor retardation, as it's sometimes called, the opposite of agitation, and may be associated with uh, sensory disturbance in the form of hallucinations, typically visual hallucinations. So that's the syndrome of delirium which you might encounter on the ward.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and what kind of causes do you think would account for somebody to become delirious?
1: Okay, so again um, we need to take a step back here and really we need to make a distinction between delirium or an acute confusional state or what we neurologists might call an acute encephalopathy which classically we think of as being caused by one thing primarily the opposite to that is delirium as a multifactorial problem and of course in general hospitals a bit more so than at the walton center here uh the multifactorial scenario is what you encounter and and i think when you have the multifactorial scenario uh, you need to be thinking about three main types of contributor so uh The most external is exactly that, so the external environment. Uh, So, uh, the the usual unsettling environment for people, of course, is the hospital. Okay, and you know, hospitals are horrible places, you sort of encounter different people, uh, different staff members on different days, you might have disruption at night, you might have noises, you might be removed from people that you're familiar with, there might be Beeps and there might be clocks that tell you the wrong time and old newspapers to mislead you. So, so the environment is a, is a really important factor. Going inward, as it were, the next uh, level is the body. Okay, So anything to do with the system of the body. So any organ failure, any infection, any metabolic, electrolyte disturbance, anything really uh, could contribute to a multifactorial delirium and then at the core of it is the brain so you might have residual brain disease classically someone with early stage dementia or even a brewing dementia that hasn't presented that that is um sort of pushed across a threshold into a state of delirium by uh Having urine infection and being taken into hospital, so that's the multifactorial scenario. So, uh, reduced brain reserve, failure of the body to do its job, or uh, extenuating circumstances, some challenging environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so when you're assessing uh, a patient with delirium on the ward, it's really useful diagnostically and in terms of the therapy to to think about all those things and if it boils down I I know we have to be careful in how we state this but if it boils down to anything age is really important isn't it because um, brewing dementia is so much less likely to be present in early life, so the sixth decade when when someone's in their 50s, for instance, so much less likely than when someone's in their 70s, that age is a really important thing. Um, And then the other, apart from that bit of information about how old the patient is, the other key bit of information uh, is to get collateral data, isn't it? I think being aware of the age of the patient and making sure that you get a collateral history from the ward staff that is present and who know the pa- those ward staff members who know the patient the clinical documents and if necessary speaking to people who knew uh, the patient before they came into hospital i think those are the key bits of information that, that you go mm. for there
0: okay so so you mentioned you mentioned briefly there about the therapeutics how you look at a couple of different areas mm. the external the body systems and the mm. brain itself how else would you approach trying to treat? Okay, delirium?
1: so if we're if we're talking about treating delirium in the holistic sense, then then you're kind of going you're going on the same tracks, aren't you? You're trying to maintain the stability of the ward. You're trying to maintain the stability of the body, making sure that someone isn't dehydrated, making sure that their glycemic control is good, making sure that they're not hypotensive, making sure that they've had treatment for infection, treatment for pain that could be unsettling. Um, So all of those are really important as part of the holistic picture. You might, you know, someone becomes delirious to the point of being very agitated, you might be talking about crisis management and medication, although... There are serious risks with all of the medications that that you might use for delirium. And and, um, the more you can manage it by de-escalation, the better. But I suppose if you're approaching this as a neurologist, what you're wanting to do is also make sure that there isn't a specific brain condition which is treatable in itself that you haven't missed, that you know, you've kind of uh, uh, made sure that everything is stable, the hemodynamic state, status is OK, the electrolytes are OK. All, all, all of that is, is sorted, but you really need to make sure that, that there isn't anything else. Um, and so, again, we're, we're sort of thinking about three different types of uh, diagnosis here. So we were talking about diseases of the body as contributors to multifactorial delirium. Um, but, of course, a very serious systemic illness can itself cause delirium, even in a perfectly healthy person. So someone who has a very severe sepsis, for instance, might, might have delirium, even, even a young person with a very healthy brain. I think in terms of the individual organ failures the organ failure that is most likely to present with delirium is liver failure. It's pretty unusual to have heart failure presenting with delirium alone, Mm. pretty unusual to have renal or respiratory failure doing that, but very slowly developing liver failure with impairment of processing of protein degradation products and hyperammonemia, Um, so that can present with hepatic encephalopathy, a form of delirium. So of the systemic diseases uh, that can, in themselves, as a a single disease, cause delirium, severe sepsis and liver failure are the two main ones. Mm -hmm. Then in terms of remedial diseases, you'd be thinking about structural neurosurgical diseases, and of course they would be picked up by doing a CT scan, usually. Uh, So you can get... Uh, too much water in the brain, hydrocephalus, and a sort of CSF pressure problem. Uh, You can get too much blood in the head, so a a form of brain hemorrhage of one sort or another, or you can get too much uh, flesh in the brain, so brain edema or perhaps more likely brain tumour disease causing compression. So you can get too much and occasionally too little of, of any of those as a neurosurgical problem that would generally be shown up on a CT and you'd discuss with the neurosurgeons and you'd manage that way. But of course, there are some brain diseases that don't show up on a straightforward CT scan and that's where the neurologist or, or, the, or the experienced general physician or general practitioner might come in. And um, so I, I would think about these in a few categories. So, so you could have intracranial infection, meningitis or encephalitis Mm -hmm. um so of course um you're more likely to get delirium and less likely to get headache and meningism with encephalitis with with encephalitis and the other way with meningitis but but you will get both with both um and meningitis obviously more likely to be associated with bacterial infection and so a wider range of antimicrobial drugs to consider, but the big uh, antimicrobial agent to be thinking about in an encephalitic illness, of course, is acyclovir used to treat herpes simplex viral encephalitis, which is by far the most severe of the common forms of viral encephalitis. Another serious brain disease that doesn't appear on a brain scan would be Uh, low-grade epilepsy in the brain without houseward convulsion, and and that might need to be treated with a phenytoin infusion or other treatments for status epilepticus. This would be non-convulsive status epilepticus. The next one uh, to be aware of and not to miss is is the metabolic one. Um, So hypoglycemia, not to miss, um, but obviously that's usually picked up on basic tests. But the, the pair with hypoglycemic hypoglycemia that's really important is um, reduced thiamine, so Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. And people, ironically people with hepatic problems, especially in the context of alcohol use, might have hypoglycemia, but they might also be depleted of micronutrients like thiamine, and you can trigger thiamine by giving a carbohydrate load and that can cause uh, an acute vernicare encephalopathy which must be treated straight away and then just the two forms of vascular disease that would be medical rather than surgical that could cause a delirium I would say would be venous sinus thrombosis cerebral venous sinus thrombosis Mm -hmm. another emergency that could present with an encephalopathy needs anticoagulation and last of all not so typical to present with an encephalopathy but basilar artery thrombosis so not a, a hemispheric infarct where you get a focal deficit rather than a confusion usually but but a but an arterial occlusion that causes dysfunction of the deep parts of the uh, the diencephalon and midbrain uh, and the deep part of the cerebral hemispheres um, it would be occlusion of the of the basilar artery, and nowadays we do kind of interventional treatments, or not me, but the people who have that skill for those patients. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. Look out for more podcast episodes coming out shortly.